Welcome back to the Autism Annex podcast. I'm your host, John Andrew Slominski. If you haven't looked at the changing statistics in autism diagnosis over the last 20 years, let me tell you, it's pretty striking. In the year 2000, the CDC reported that roughly one in 150 children received an autism diagnosis. By 2018, that number had more than tripled to one in 44. To be clear, that's not due to more of the population having autism, but rather to steadily improving awareness. Just as diagnostic tools seem to be on the upswing, a study by UCLA Health's Department of Medicine confirmed earlier in 2022 what many families of color have known for decades, that racial and ethnic disparities can be enormous barriers to services, especially when caring for a child with autism or another developmental disability. Enter my guest, Danielle Sturdevant. Ms. Sturdevant is a social worker, an educator on the intersections of race and disability, and the mother of a young man on the autism spectrum. She is also the founder of Living Autism Out Loud, where she tackles these very barriers to access faced by so many of the BIPOC and autism communities. Ms. Danielle Sturdevant, welcome. I'm so glad to connect with you. How are you? I'm well, and grateful to you for making time for a conversation. Thank you. To get started, you've educated others on how to educate others when it comes to parents of students on the autism spectrum. Uh, what did that look like? Yeah, so I used to teach a course over there at UNC Chapel Hill for speech and language students on um, how to engage parents with children um, with disabilities. And my role as a parent is to uh, be that voice for parents and allow the students an opportunity to have real life experience with a parent um, who they will more than likely be working with once they graduate from their program. So there were teachers, um, speech and language pathologists, occupational therapist, anybody that's basically member parent facing. After the course, one of the things that really struck me was uh, a lot of the students said that they um, had received as much from my information as they had from the uh, course um, curriculum. So I thought that was that was um, pretty um, impressive because I think that a lot of times we when we go to school we learn from a book but we don't necessarily have the opportunity to have real life experience and pair it with what we learn in school and so that was very instrumental i think for the students and working uh, with parents once they graduate i think it's important to note here that you have some significant personal experience in addition to your professional expertise well, um, actually, um, my son was diagnosed almost by accident. And the reason why I say it's almost by accident is because when Joshua was probably around 16 months old, he started choking or gagging on solid foods. And so when I went to his doctor, I said, you know, I don't know what's going on. You know, he's not really chewing his food or he's gagging. So his doctor um, suggested that I take him um, to our local hospital for a barum swallow study. And when um, the tech did the swallow study, what she noted was that although it looked like he was chewing, um, when he swallowed, the Cheerio was still remained whole in his mouth. So um, from there, they thought that he, ne he would need OT, um, occupational therapy to help him chew, um, physical therapy, and um, speech. 
And so um, I started on that journey. And at that point, he was um, they had diagnosed him with a developmental delay. And what that means is that he was delayed in some key areas. And usually or sometimes for some kids, when they are delayed, they can sometimes make up some of those milestones with early intervention. So you and your son, Joshua, have this new diagnosis. What do you do? So we started out um, doing early intervention. We did that for probably a little over a year. And then when Joshua was two and a half, he was diagnosed with autism. So although he had made up a lot of developmental delays, he still had autism. And I say accidental because it started with him gagging on solid foods. And one of the things that I like to talk to parents about is it's not always um, something glaring that you'll notice. It could be just like little things. It could be... um, 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 you know, sensitivity to food. It could be certain behaviors that you're picking up on. So if parents are having any types of um, concerns, I would suggest that they talk to their child's pediatrician about an evaluation. Going back to your expertise in helping future caregivers to communicate better with parents, did you find that otherwise educated, intelligent people sometimes had misconceptions about what parenting and autism looked like? Sure. I think um, what I had gathered from the students that I talked to, um, I think that some of them had a, I don't almost, I want to almost say a fear of talking to parents or a fear of having that conversation about, you know, your child may be delayed or your child may need, um, you know, may need an evaluation. Um, just about parents who, um, in my case, I have a child that's disabled. And I think one of the things I was able to do was to help them see um, a day in the life of. For example, um, in my son's case, I'll use my son as an example, there were times where he had difficulty sleeping. There were times where he had issues with feeding. There were times when he had issues with his tummy, you know, and we didn't sleep much. Um, he um, had asthma probably for the first couple years of his life. So it seemed like every night at one o'clock, he'd have an asthma attack. So we're on the machine. So we're up and down. And so sometimes when I got to the meetings, I was tired and, you know, cranky and all of those things. And I think that once um, students had an opportunity to hear what we as parents really face and go through as we walk through this uh, journey of autism with our children or IDD with our children, I think it allowed them to um, see us more as human and not as the, you know, the difficult parent who comes in, who, who's not engaged, who doesn't really participate. And a lot of times, um, we're tired. And then in some cases, it's a cultural thing where we believe that the teachers have the answers. And so we really almost have to be invited to uh, be a partner and invited to speak. And I think um, having the teachers hear that from a parent and learn that was um, very helpful for them. You've done quite a bit of work at the intersection of autism and race. And I wonder if you could go into some of the cultural barriers that you found black indigenous parents of color face when it comes to autism services. Sure, sure. So absolutely. So again, I'll use my um, son's example because that's the only example I can use uh, freely. Um, But I do want people to understand that I have been working with parents for years. So this is not just me sitting here saying this. This is all research and evidence-based, and I'd be happy to share any research that anybody's interested in. So um, in my son's case, in our case, I think that his diagnosis, again, like I told you, was accidental. And I'll give you an example. 
when I first went to his pediatrician about what I thought were delays, I was told, oh, you know, you, you can wait. He's going to catch up. He's an only child. You know, there's no child before him to model. Kids listen to kids and all of that stuff. It wasn't until Joshua had the problem swallowing that he became more interested and gave me the referral that I probably should have gotten the first time. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is there is this, um, there's a body of research on medical racism. And what that shows is that women of color, particularly black women, um, don't necessarily get the same treatment as, as white women or other women that are non-black. Um, there's a high immortality rate for black women who uh, actually give birth. Um, there are um, just all sorts of statistics on um, the diagnosis itself. So um, years ago, it, there was um, children of color were, were diagnosed at probably by the age of eight. I think that number has gone down some, so it's getting younger. And I think that is specifically due to advocacy. The other part of that is, however, if you um, wanna talk research, um, the information that parents of color, particularly black parents are reporting, does not necessarily line up with the diagnosis of autism. The other um, cultural piece is, um, the lack of providers of color that are available to actually treat and uh, diagnose our children. Even though we, we are in America and we are, you know, we have a culture of America, there are some um, things that are specific, I think, to families of color that we actually know and, and acknowledge. And when we don't have that opportunity to have those conversations with our, our caregivers and our providers, it just makes it a little bit more challenging. Um, it's very difficult to um, have to explain my son's hair or something about his skin. The other piece of that, again, is when we're going to doctors and we're saying we have these concerns and we're being told to wait sometimes that means i'm not going to get back around to this because my kid is having these issues and these things are going on and i just don't have time to go back and talk about this again we've already talked about it you know so i think that's a that's a big huge part of it so i'm curious in addition to better cultural competencies and better cultural representation among practitioners what feedback for improvement would you offer to autism professionals when it comes to working with families of color? One of the things they can do is ask the parents. We are the experts on our children. Now, I know in my case, I only have really one, one true job, one lifelong job, and that's to understand and know my child. Um, and uh, offer parents an opportunity to feel comfortable talking about whatever issues they want to talk about. And one of the things that people, uh, service providers in particular, have to do is they have to learn to understand that there is a culture and they have to figure out how to practice cultural humility. And what cultural humility says is, I want to learn, tell me about you, I'm open to listen and learn. So when I'm going in and talking with providers, even his medical doctor, that there's other things that are come into play here. And one is my fear and anxiety about my black child not being able to understand what police officers or somebody saying to him and he, he will get hurt. Do you know what I mean? And so if we recognize and we're not afraid to say, I, you know, I, I don't know, can, can you tell me more? that will go a long way in helping providers become more culturally responsive instead of thinking it's not a thing. I think people think if I don't mention race and if I don't mention she's black, 
no one will ever know that she's black. She won't even know that I know. <laughs> and it's not a secret, you know, and it's work that has, we absolutely have to do that work. We have to do that work. I talk to parents all the time. I talk to parents of color. I talk to white parents. I partner with parents from all different races, whatever. Um, and one of the things that we share is we love our children and we want good quality service. We worry about, you know, how, where our kids will be when we're not here anymore. We worry about, you know, their safety in schools. We worry about their safety in the community. Um, there was an incident here not long ago, not here, but near here not long ago um, in Target where a boy with autism was, I guess he was trying to buy gum or something. He was tackled to the ground because he didn't have the words to explain and express what he was trying to do. It was assumed that he was stealing. And I just felt that because I'm like, that could be my son. You know, that could very have could have very easily been my son. And I think a lot of parents of color kind of feel that way, that we have to really go above and beyond and protect, you know, our children all the time and at all costs. And it's, it is exhausting. If um, people understood more about um, autism in particular, and then autism for black males and autism for black females, I think things would be a lot different. Like when I go to my son's school, I have to explain to them what his autism is to him. Not what they read in the book, not what they think, not what the kid next to him has, but what autism looks like for him and what they need to do to support him. And it's work, it, you know, it's a constant uh, journey. And it sounds like there are some very tangible steps of asking, listening, and learning that we can take in that journey to know more about one another. Is there anything you'd point to that you wish others had understood better about your family? Well, um, black families in particular, and I can speak for my own, are communal. So um, it wasn't that I was hesitant to go and run and do what they said. I had uh, my grandmother and my grandfather and my aunties and my uncles and my siblings and all these people that I had to talk to to get all this information. And it wasn't a point of whether or not I would take their um, advice. It, it's a sign of respect. So we respect our elders and we rely on our elders to give us wisdom and give us information. And sometimes um, people tend to think that we're individualistic and we were not really, when we were brought to this country, we were not individualistic. Our role has always been caretaker. We've always been about family because there's a hierarchy um, in a lot of families, especially mine that, you know, that, that we work from. And I don't know if that's widely known or if people really think about it in that way, but that's the way that I choose to think about it because I think it helps people see it if I can say, well, you know, there's a hierarchy and these are the people that I have to talk to. Whether or not I get, take their advice, I still have to give them respect and explain this to them because I want them to understand it the way that I do. Well, you're speaking to this dynamic, multidimensional, multi-generational culture of raising a child that isn't just one-way communication and that's it. Right. No, not at all. That's never it. <laughs> it's never it. So, you know, it's just an interesting dynamic when I think about it that way. So it struck me earlier in our conversation that you mentioned your fear for your son's safety and how others perceive him as a young black man on the spectrum. Can you give me an example of how this open communication and back and forth between school and home can help keep him safe and understood? A lot of times I know, especially um, 
uh, parents of color, we don't really like to share information because we know that teachers aren't mandated reporters and they may misinterpret something that we say. But I would urge and encourage parents to really think about how to um, A, talk with teachers about your culture, who you are, invite them in to understand who you are so that they understand that when you make a statement, you're making a statement out of the culture of your home. Um, make sure that you're um, sharing a sleep habits. That's, that was a big one for my kid. He was falling asleep in school and they thought I was keeping him up all night. Absolutely not. <laughs> That's not what was happening. Um, the other thing is for my son, when there's an uptick in behaviors, one of the things I absolutely understand is I have to take him to the doctor because that means that maybe he hasn't used the bathroom in a while or something's going on internally. So a lot of times, obviously, our kids are sometimes not able to tell us when they have a tummy ache or a headache or a toothache. Those are really big things um, to think about when your child, when you see this change in behaviors that you haven't seen before. Think about how you can um, rule out anything that's medical and then you can kind of look at the behavioral because as we know, behavior is communication and we just have to figure out what they're trying to say. You've outlined some gaps that need to be filled in cultural and family communication with school staff. In your experience, have you found schools up to the challenge? His school right now, they are phenomenal. One of the things that his teacher was able to do immediately is identify herself as an ally. And and she absolutely gets, she gets him and she gets us and she understands us. And I think that's wonderful. Um, We have... um, IEP meetings where I'm a part of the team, you know, I'm addressed as Miss Sturdivant. They don't call me mom. They actually say Miss Sturdivant, which makes a difference. Um, They really target things that are important to us and things that are important to him. One of the things, this is the best example ever. One of my son's teachers said to me, um, Josh had gotten a 50. On, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a test. And he said, instead of looking at it like he failed because he had gotten his 50, we look at it as he's mastered 50% of the content and we need to figure out how to get him to master the other 50%. And that to me was the best ever because it Joshua has his self-esteem intact <laughs> because he doesn't feel like he's failed. And I know that these teachers are really going to try to get that other information Um, into him and help him really process and learn that information. And he is now in gen ed and he's rocking out. I mean, his grades are really good, really, really good. Um, Despite some challenges during the pandemic, he had gotten the best grades he's ever gotten, um, at least four A's out of seven classes. Um, And uh, I think the other thing that makes this school work for us is they don't mind modifying curriculum. So he has visual aids. He has all of the things that he needs right at his fingertips so that he can actually manage um, his day. And they have done a phenomenal job. I went from um, getting calls every day to come and get him to rarely do I get a phone call about anything because they are really committed to you know, understanding him and giving him a voice. And that's something that he hasn't had before. It's amazing. You've been listening to my conversation with Danielle Sturdivant. If listeners would like to know more about your work, how could they get in touch? So I do have an organization called Living Autism Out Loud, where I aim to decrease and eventually eliminate the barriers that BIPOC, Black and Indigenous parents of color face 
when we are trying to access services for our children, you can reach me by email dsturdivant at livingautismoutloud.org. Danielle Sturdivant, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story and wisdom on the podcast. Yes, this has been, this has been great. Any opportunity I can take to educate, I'm, I'm all for it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Autism Annex podcast. I'm your host and producer, John Andrew Slominski. Special thanks to Danielle Sturdevant of Living Autism Out Loud for making this episode possible. Tune in next month for a discussion with author Dawn Barkley on her new book, Traveling Different. We'll discuss challenges and joys for young travelers on the spectrum. Please join us. Until next time, my friends, take good care of yourself and one another.